everybody. As always, if you got your Bible, we are obviously in the book of Job, and today we're going to be in verses 8 through 22. Job 8 through 22, chapter 1, verse 8 through 22. And the title of our lesson is The First Test. The First Test. Let's read, we'll begin, let's begin reading in verse 8. We left off here last week and we covered this verse in detail, but we're going to pick up with it one more time today. Job 1.8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Now I want you to, I want you to think about this scenario for a moment. Let's, let's say that you own a, a jewelry store. And one day you close up at 5 o'clock, and for some reason that night you have to come back to the store. And, and when you come back to the store, you, you interrupt a thief uh, robbing your store. Would you say to that thief, hey, have you seen the big diamond in the front window? Would you do that? Probably not. That wouldn't make any sense to, to point out the most valuable thing that you got. But that is exactly what God is doing. Some, somehow this... This thieving, murdering, accusing, fallen angel finds his way into God's presence. And God says, have you seen the big diamond? Have you seen Job? God brings it up, right? Satan doesn't doesn't bring it up. God says, have you seen my most valued possession here? Have you seen Job? I mean, he's literally setting Job up as a target. Now, Now listen... God is not a fool. God is not a, a bumbler. God doesn't make mistakes. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's setting Job up to be tested by Satan. And it is a test that's going to involve severe and terrible tragedy. But God is, is doing this, right? He's the one that points him, points him out. Now listen, once again, I'll say it. We've said it three times. I'll say it again. It's not because Job has done anything wrong. It's not because he needs some kind of correction in his life. In fact, the very opposite is true. God is extremely proud. I mean, you can hear it, read between the lines, you can hear it in his voice. Have you seen my servant Job? He is unique. There's nobody. He's one of a kind. There's nobody else like him on the face of the earth. He he is absolutely delighted with him. Okay, so it's not because he's done anything wrong. God, God is just, it, it, God's got his own reasons here. Now, of course, Satan is not impressed. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land, But if you stretch out your hand and you touch all that he has, he will curse you to your face. Now, there's a a few things here I want to point out about Satan. And I'm going to tell you this a little bit. Satan is a bit player here. Okay. In fact, after chapter 2, verse 7, we never hear about him again. He, He is just a bit player. But I do want to point out a few things about him. The first thing is his cynicism. And this is something you need to understand about evil and about Satan in general. At his very essence, he is a cynic. And what I mean by that is if he sees anything good, he thinks it's false. That's what cynicism is, right? 
In other words, he sees something good, he sees something kind, he sees something loving, he sees something merciful, and, and he thinks, that's not real. That, that's, that's false, that's dishonest, that's, that's just made up. That's, that's who he is at his very core. He is a, a cynic, which tells us, by the way, that cynicism is the essence of the satanic. It is the fruit of unbelief. And the reason I bring this up, because many of us, and I would put myself in this, can struggle with being cynical. And if you struggle with being cynical, you need to fight that with everything that's in you. That is not a godly trait. That is not a godly trait. That is a satanic trait. Belief looks at things... Belief looks at things and says, man, that's good. That's, a, that's from God, right? Every good and perfect gift is from God. Cynicism looks at, looks at something that's good and says, eh, let's see how long that lasts. Are you with me? That's not a good trait. Now, it's okay to be realistic. I'm not saying we, we live in some pie-in-the-sky world, but if you fight cynicism, you need to fight it because that is not a, a godly trait. The second thing we see about Satan's words is how two-faced or double-minded he is. Listen, there is no doubt that suffering is one of the ways that Satan, or one of the means that Satan will use to lead people to sin. In fact, that's exactly what he wants to do with Job, yes? He wants him to suffer so that he will curse God. So that is for sure one of the ways that Satan uses to lead people into sin. But let me tell you, Satan, he'll use anything at his disposal. He'll use prosperity. If prosperity and wealth will lead you to sin, he doesn't care. He'll use that. 1 Timothy 6, 9 said this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Can suffering lead you to sin? Sure. Can prosperity lead you to sin? Absolutely. In fact, prosperity can be just as great a temptation as suffering because it leads you to trust in yourself and trust in your own wealth and riches and not trust in God. At, at the same time, suffering can lead people to God, yes? Some people go through life and, and they're just kind of cruising along and everything's going good and, and they really don't have any room for God, any need for God, any, any mind toward God. And then one day suffering comes. One day tragedy comes and it humbles them and they turn to God. If you, if you want proof of that, look at the prodigal son. As soon as he got poor and started suffering and eating out of a pig pen, he, it was time to go home, right? So sometimes suffering can turn us away from God. Sometimes suffering can turn us to God. Prosperity can turn us away from God. Here's the point. Satan doesn't care. Satan really does not care. Whatever he can use against you, that's the one that he's going he's gonna to use. See, prosperity did, hadn't, worked, hadn't done anything with Job. Job was blessed. He was prosperous and... And, and he didn't turn away from God. So Satan's like, okay, I, we got to try something else here. The fact is, he'll use whatever it takes, suffering, prosperity, doesn't matter, as long as he can get you to turn away from God. The third thing about Satan is he is living up to his name. I, I mentioned last week that in Hebrew, uh, the word Satan means accuser or adversary. His other name, the devil, means a slanderer. And he is living up to his name. Revelation 12.10 says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. That's what he does. He's constantly accusing us. He's accusing 
the brothers and, and the sisters. So he comes before God and he starts accusing Job. He's saying, well, his faith ain't real. It, you know, he looks at Job and he sees all this faith. He sees all this godly character and he, he's a cynic. He says, man, that ain't real. That, that's not real. In other words, he's just serving you, God, for what he can get out of you. You've blessed him. You put a hedge of protection around him. Uh, he, he's, that's, this is all just baloney. He would easily curse you if you took that away from him. But here's something else I want you to see. Satan is not just accusing Job. He's also accusing God. See, if you read between the lines, look at Job 1, 9 through 10. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has? Haven't you blessed the work of his hands? See, what, what he's saying right there is you've bought his love. That's what he's accusing God of. You bought his love. You give him all these benefits. You protect him from any kind of tragedy, any kind of suffering. And sure, he's going to serve you. Who wouldn't? You've bought his love. You've bought his obedience. You've bought his devotion. So again, he's, he's living up to his name. Not only, not only does he accuse Job, he's also accusing God. So the basic questions, now listen to me very closely, because right here, Satan has raised the basic questions of the book of Job. Will a man love God just for who he is and not for his benefits? If you take a man that loves God and you take away all the benefits, you take away all the blessings, you take away all the protection, will he still love God? Will a man hold on to God when there are no blessings attached? That's the question right here. Will you hold on to God when for a season He's not the way maker? If you go through a season in your life and He's not the way maker, will a man or a woman hold on to God? That's the question of this book. That's the test that Satan wants to raise right here. And by the way, these aren't just questions in a book. And they're not just questions for Job. They're questions for me and you. These are our questions when we go through suffering. Will we love God just for who He is and not for all of His gifts? Will we hold on to God when there seems to be no benefits attached to holding on to Him? Will we keep the faith when we suffer? See, these aren't, this is why this book is so relevant today. It's the exact, that test of Job is our test. It's every Christian's test. And we'll see that here in a little bit more. Here's my fourth one. Satan is a punk. Now, now, I put this a specific way for a specific reason, and here's why. In theology today, there exists a concept called dualism. By the way, it's been around forever. Thomas Jefferson was a big believer in dualism. Go back and, and look at it. He talked about God a lot, but he didn't believe in... The, I've said this before. He didn't believe in the God I believe in. He believed in a completely different God. He believed in something called dualism. Now, dualism... What it believes is there are two entities in the world, good and evil. And they are equally powerful and they are constantly at war. Everybody with me? That's what dual means, two. So dualism means there's good and there's evil in the world and they're equally powerful. One's not stronger than the other. Sometimes one wins, sometimes the other wins. But they're constantly fighting war for control uh, of the human heart and the human mind. Now, of course... For, for people that believe in dualism, God would represent the good and Satan would represent the evil. And these people believe that God and Satan are equally powerful. And they're both, again, fighting this 
this war here in the world. Now, here's what you got to understand. In dualism, God is not sovereign. In dualism, God is not in complete control. There are things that happen in life that, you know, God would have changed it if he could, but he just couldn't. Satan just got the better of him that time. Everybody with me? I mean, this is a... And, and by the way, this, is, this, is, this has been believed for thousands of years. It's still going on out there today. In fact, we are living in a day where a lot of people don't use the phrase dualism, but it's being taught by... It's being taught in seminaries. It's being taught by men and women who claim to be Christians. I'm going to quote you several so that you don't think, well, he's just making all this stuff up. The first one I'm going to uh, quote is a guy by the name of William Barclay. Now, William Barclay's dead, but the reason I quote him is because he's a famous author of many commentaries that are still used in Christian seminaries today. He wrote a bunch of commentaries, and they're still used by students today. This is what he said. I believe that pain and suffering are never the will of God for his children. I cannot conceive that it is the will of God that anyone should be run over by a drunk driver or that a young mother should die of leukemia. Now, I want you to understand very closely what he's saying. He's saying there are things that happen in this world that are not the will of God. Everybody see that? Which, which means what he's saying, there are things in this world that God can't do anything about. And what he's saying is God is not sovereign. God is not in complete control. He believes in dualism. He believes there's, a, there's another entity out there that sometimes just beats God. And that's being... He wrote commentaries. Okay? Here's another one. John Sanders, who wrote a book called The God Who Risked. God does not have a specific divine purpose for each and every occurrence of evil. When a two-month-old child contracts cancer, it's pointless. The, the Holocaust is pointless. The accident that caused my brother's death is pointless. So he believes that there are things that are happening in this world that are pointless. They have no purpose. And if you go on and read, he believes the same thing that the other guy did. There, there's just things that happen in this world, and God can't do anything about them. In other words, God is not sovereign. God is not in control. One more, Greg Boyd, Letters from a Skeptic, said this. When an individual inflicts pain on another individual, I don't think we can go looking for the purpose of God in the event. I know Christians frequently speak about the purpose of God in the midst of tragedy caused by someone else, but this I regard to be a simply, piously confused way of thinking. Once again, he's just saying there are things that happen in this world, God just can't do anything about it. God is, is impotent in some ways. Everybody with me here? Because this is, is so... So, so very important. See, in the end, you and I have to make a decision. What do you believe? Do you truly, truly believe that God is sovereign, that He's in control over everything that happens, whether it's a drunk driver hitting somebody or whether it's cancer or whatever? Do you believe He's in control or do you believe the other? Do you believe, you know what, I just can't go there. I believe that there's just some things that happen that are outside the will of God. Now, let me tell you, if you go down that road, you got all kind of problems. Because now you're, 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 you're saying God's not sovereign. God's not in control. There's another power out there like Satan who's just as powerful as he is and beats him sometimes. Is that... you? But you, let me tell you, you have to make a decision in your life. You have to. 
I had to do that a long time ago. I thought I knew what I believed, and one day I figured, found out I don't have any idea what I really believe. Now, let me tell you, it's one or the other. You can't find a middle ground. There is no plan C or, or option number three or door number three. He's either sovereign or he's not. He's either in complete control or he's not. It's one or the other. You've got two choices here. Which one do you believe? Now, the question becomes, well, what does the Bible teach? Well, I can tell you the Bible is extremely clear in what it teaches. And it teaches us that dualism is a lie. The truth is that this evil power that exists in the universe, which we know as Satan, yes, he's powerful, but his power is limited. He only has power that's given to him by God. I mean, we see this in scriptures throughout the Bible. For example, 1 John 4, 4, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God is, is, is more powerful. He's greater than any evil kind of power in this universe. Now listen, it's, it's no, we'll see this. We're going to talk about this more next week. Satan has power. There is no doubt about it. First uh, Peter 5, 8 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He can destroy. He can ruin. He can lie and cheat and steal. He can bring suffering. He can do a lot of things. But let me tell you something. The book of Job gives us a truth that is unbelievable. In this, in this place in, in the book of Job, in, in the first chapter where it pulls back the curtain of heaven and it lets us see this, this dialogue between God and Satan, what we found out is that Satan can do absolutely nothing. He cannot touch God's elect. He cannot touch God's chosen. He cannot touch Job, and he cannot touch you unless he gets permission from God to do so. Job 1.10, he says to him, you've put a hedge around him. I can't touch him. I, I would have I I done something to this guy a long time ago, but you won't let me. You, you've got a, a spiritual hedge around him. I can't touch anything that's his. That's what he's saying right there. Now, you may say, well, okay, well, Derek, that's in Job, but is it taught anywhere else in the Bible? Well, of course it is. It's taught by Jesus himself. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 32, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Satan has asked. Satan had to come to us and ask us, can I have Peter? Can I sift him like wheat? Listen, we... That's, that's, a, that's a sermon right there in that, in that verse right there. Not only because does Satan have to ask to do it, but watch what Jesus said, but I pray for you. I pray for you. By the way, when, when Jesus prays for you, it's answered. It's a done deal, right? He asks in perfect, complete faith. And in fact, watch what he says. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And he doesn't say, and if you turn again, what does he say? And when? And when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. And say, in fact, I'm going to let him do it, Satan. I'm going to let him sift you. I'm going to, or, or Simon, I'm going to let him put you through some stuff. But I prayed for you. And when you turn again, take what's happened to you and use it for strength. And strengthen your brothers. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's five, six, seven sermons right there on suffering and the reasons for suffering and God's role in our suffering right there. But my point to you this morning is it's right there in the New Testament. Satan has to ask. 
He can't do anything without asking God, can I do this? And he has to get permission from God to, to do it. Let me back up something here. Can I, I'm going to ask you to have... I was thinking about this the other day. Can we stop... You know, Satan, we, we got this idea that he can just do anything he wants. If the lights went out right now, somebody would say, well, Satan did it. Yes. Can we stop doing that, please? If Satan had that kind of power, wouldn't he do it every Sunday? If Satan had that kind of power, he'd kill you dead right now so you'd never witness. He, if Satan had that kind of power, he'd kill every unbeliever so they'd go straight to hell. He doesn't have that kind of power. He has to get permission from God to do anything. And we've seen that in the Old Testament. We've seen it in the New Testament. If Job teaches us anything else about Satan, is that he is a mere creature. He's not anywhere close to being equal with God. Now, listen, he is powerful. He has power. We will see next week. He can turn men's hearts to do evil things. We'll see next week. He can, he can somehow, in, in some way, control the weather. But he does nothing, nothing without the permission of God. He does nothing that's outside the will of God. He has to come to God and say, can I do this? And God will say yes or God will say no. But I don't care what kind of power he's got, he has to get permission from the almighty, omniscient, all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe to do anything. He's a punk. And so I don't want to make Satan's power in Job any more than it is. I mentioned it earlier. Once we get to chapter... There's 42 chapters in... In, uh, in Job, once you get to chapter 2, you never hear about him again. Never. He's a, he's a minor player. He's a, he's a, he's a uh, what do you call actors that just kind of come on for a minute and, and then they're gone. He's just, he just plays a bit part in this story. And in fact, let me say this, his place in the theology of this book is even less than that. After you get out of chapter 2, we're going to spend 40 chapters talking about suffering. And do you know Satan is never mentioned one time as the cause? Job is talking, uh, Elihu, Bill, all his friends are talking, God comes on the scene, they're all talking about suffering. Nobody ever mentions Satan one time, not once. Not a single time. So his role in the theology of suffering is, 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 is negligible, if at all. So let's not make him out to be more than he, uh, than he is. Let's look at verse 12. So the Lord, so, so he puts this test. Yeah, if you, if you do anything to Job, he'll, he'll curse you to your face. And so the Lord says in verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. In other words, you can touch everything he's got. Don't touch him physically. You can't make him sick. You can't kill him. You can't do anything to him physically. But everything else is in your hand. There's the permission. So Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord. Now again, it's limited. Notice he's got permission, but it's limited. You can do this, but you can't do any more. Look at this, guys. Satan always had the power to inflict Job. Satan always had the desire, yes? What he lacked was permission. That's the only thing he lacked, permission. And that now he has got. And of course... He walks out and, and it begins to happen. Now, I want to make an observation before we... Uh, because right here, we kind of close the, the curtain on heaven, what's going on behind the scenes, and we're going to come back to earth. Before I do that, I want to make an observation. The issue that we're dealing with, and this is only our third week, but the issue that we're going to deal with here in the book of Job is the sovereignty of God in our suffering. 
When we suffer, is it the will of God? Where is God? What is God doing? What's going on? These are the issues that we're, that we're going to be dealing with. And this is not some minor thing. It's not just some theological thing. Let, let's just use our minds a little bit and, and be proud of ourselves because we, you know, we, we, we studied the book of Job. It's not that at all. In fact, it is weighty. It is, it is personal. And I'm going to tell you, it's extremely practical. Now, why do I say it's practical? Because you tell me, what do you say to a friend that's lost a loved one in a car wreck? What, what do you say to a friend that calls you up and they were taking a shower that morning and they found a lump? What do you say? That's about as practical as it gets, isn't it? Do you tell them it's all pointless? You tell there's no meaning to it? Do, do you tell them that, well, God, what, by the way, do you tell them this ain't the will of God? Sometimes we will take God away from people at the very moment they need Him the most. Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes this ain't God's fault. We take God away the, the very moment they need Him more than anything. Now, I'm not saying you walk into an emergency room and start talking about... I'm not. You've got to have some tact, right? You don't start talking about the will of God. But if you start telling them things like, well, God had nothing to do with this. This ain't the will of God. You're basically telling them God's impotent. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a force out there, Satan, who's stronger than God and made this. Come on, what, what are you going to do? What is your theology? What do you really believe? Are you going to be there with good Bible-based theology when that friend has questions? Listen, there's a time and a place. One of the things we're going to find about Job's friends that they did right is when Job suffers, they come and they sit with him for seven days and they keep their mouth shut. People don't need theology in the emergency room. They need you. They just need you. They just need you to be there. The time for theology, the time for the questions will come later, as we'll see in this book. When that time comes, are you going to be, are you going to be ready with good Bible-based theology, good Bible-based uh, scripture of who God is and what He's doing? See, this, that's, this is why we're doing this. This isn't just some theological exercise we're going through. This, this happens to all of us. See, I'm teaching through Job as a way of preparing your heart and your mind for tragedy. Because let me tell you, it's coming. It's coming. Now, I'm not trying to scare anybody, but listen, we go through our whole life just pretending it'll never happen to me. And then when it finally happens to you, you're completely unprepared because you spent your whole life fooling yourself it ain't going to happen. Tragedy comes, calamity comes comes. Suffering comes. For some of us, we've already been through it. For others of you are going through it today. For others of you, it's ahead of you. See, there may be people that come into this church and thinking, boy, I am so blessed. I just, I'm never sick and, and I've got plenty of money and I've never been persecuted. Listen, you will be. It's coming. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. You try to live a godly life, persecution will come through other people. It'll come from Satan. Satan may walk up to God and say, look, you see them? Bring persecution into their life and watch what happens. And God may say, okay, let's let this happen. Or how about 2 Corinthians 4, 16? We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Do you understand your outer self is dying? This body is dying. Your hair is turning gray. You're getting spots all over your, your, your arms. You can't, you get up in the morning and everything hurts. You can't, you know, everybody with me? 
That's what he's talking about. It, it's, it's living proof. It happens every single day. It's wasting away. Our bodies waste away in all kinds of sometimes horrible ways. We're all under the curse. We all groan and we're all going to die. And it's always a calamity. It's always a tragedy. It's coming. And when the calamity comes, with that calamity is going to come questions. Where are you at, God? Is this you? Is this the devil? Did I do something wrong? Did I sin? Why is this happening to me? Is this your will? All these questions are going to, are going to come. We're going through Job to answer as many of those questions as we possibly can. And there are answers, and I will give you answers in this study. But I'm going to tell you, the goal of this study is way beyond just giving you answers. The goal of this study is to show you who God really is. That's the goal of, the story of, this, of this study. The goal is to build into your heart a picture and a vision of the true God of the universe. And once you know Him, like Job said, I'd heard about you, but now I really see you. Once you know Him, when that calamity comes and those waves are hitting you and hitting you, you're going to stand strong because you know who God is in your life. That's the purpose of this study, to show you who God really... Thank God for Job and the book of Job because it gives us not only what's happening on earth, but what's going on in heaven. And there's, just, there's wonderful lessons here that are just as relevant today as they were 3,000 plus years ago. Now, you may want to know, okay, well, he's given Satan permission. Why did he do it? Why? Again, I, I'm going to give you, we're going to talk about this a lot, but I'll go ahead and give you two of them. As I said, what's happening to Job is not a penalty for sin. I've gone over that. It's not a correction. It's not a discipline. It's not for any, he's not self-righteous. Job is unique. There's nobody like him on the earth. He's not even bearing persecution just for the, for the noble sake of bearing persecution. So is it meaningless? Is it pointless? It could seem that way. But thank God we've got the New Testament. And the New Testament tells us things not only about Job, but about suffering in general. And it gives us insight into why God did it. Let me give you a scripture. First of all, one of the purposes behind what God is doing is about God himself. James 5.11 says this, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, who endure, who don't, who don't fall away when trouble comes. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and watch what he says, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He said, you see Job, you've heard how, how he remains steadfast, you've seen the purpose of, of God in the suffering. This is the purpose of God so that you can see how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you ever doubted what Job is about, James 5.11 just comes right out and tells us it's about God. It's about how sovereign He is, how compassionate He is, how merciful He is. It's all about Him. And I'm going to tell you, as we go through this book, I will stay faithful to that message. We will constantly refer back to the sovereignty of God and the compassion of God and the, and the mercy of of God over and over and over because James tells us that's what this is all about. The second thing about, and this may shock a few of us, but what happened to Job is about you. It happened for you. Romans 15.4 says this, Whatever was written in former days, talking about in the Old Testament, 
whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. He allowed that to happen to Job so that one day when you're going through your tragedy and your calamity, you can go back and open that book and have encouragement and build hope. And that's, that's amazing. You say, well, God didn't really look you know, 3,000 years in the future and see me. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. That's, that's who he is. Charles Spurgeon said this, Foolish devil, he is piling up a pedestal on which God will set his servant Job that he may be looked upon with wonder by all ages. How many saints have been comforted in their distress by this history of patience? How many people have gone to this book and found comfort and encouragement and hope throughout the ages because of what happened? God knew all that. So it's happening for his glory, but it's also happening for our encouragement. And we'll talk a lot more about this as we move through the book. So Satan leaves the presence of God, and of course it begins. Verses 13 and 15. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job, and he said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now the Sabians were an ancient people group, um, somewhere in what's modern-day Yemen today. Um, it's mentioned throughout the Bible, for example, in Joel 3.8. God says, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has, has spoken. They lived in the land, in the Bible, it was called the land of Sheba. Um, archaeologists tells us, tell us it existed from about 1200 B.C., to about 275 uh, A.D., as I mentioned, in, the, in what is now called Yemen. Uh, one of the people we know in the Bible from, from this group was the Queen of Sheba. If you go back and read, you remember Solomon, the Queen of Sheba, came and brought uh, to hear about his wisdom. She was a Sabian. She was from this, from this, uh, from this people group. So, so they come, and they come against him. Now, remember, when he started out, he had 500 yoke of oxen, and he had 500 female donkeys, and he had many, many servants... Well, those are all gone. Those have all been, been taken. Now, he might have many servants, but he don't have very many anymore. Verse 16, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God, and we'll talk about later, most people, we don't know what that was, probably lightning of some sort, fell from heaven and buried the sheep, or burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. When we opened up, he had 7,000 sheep. And those are all gone now. Don't have any of those. Verse 17, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Chaldeans were people who lived in what's modern-day uh, Iraq, and that day it was called Babylon. Uh, very intelligent people, very warlike people. Uh, one of the people we know that was a Chaldean was Abraham. Remember, he was from Ur of the Chaldees. Remember that? So he was a Chaldean. So very warlike people that existed in that. So he had 3,000 camels. He's got a few servants left over watching them, and they're gone. They're gone. Now, what comes next, that's all, for the most part, replaceable, right? The animals, of course, the servants would be a tragedy. But what comes next is going to escalate his pain 
beyond measure. Verses 18 and 19, While he was yet speaking, there come another and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, and it struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Seven sons, three daughters, ten children, and in one fell swoop, they're gone. Absolutely gone. You know, it's said at the end of verse, verses 2 and 3, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East because of all the stuff that he had. But he don't have anything anymore. He goes from being one of the wealthiest men to having... Remember, wealth in that day wasn't gold and silver and dollar bills. It was in animals. How many animals, how many servants you had? Well, those are all gone. So he's not, he's not wealthy anymore. God's blessing in that day was, was determined by how many children you had. Everybody looked at you with how many children you have and said, well, you're blessed. Well, listen, now he's got none. And that, and that last one is really the knockout punch, right? You know, he could lose a house, he can lose animals, he can lose livestock, but to lose ten children. Now, you know, only a parent who has lost a child can even begin to comprehend that kind of tragedy. You know, we all know when a child dies an earlier early death, it's 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 especially tragic, right? We all we all understand that. But can you imagine losing ten children? I mean, I, I, I mean, I can't even imagine that. Can you imagine all of your children gone in one fell swoop? The, the pain behind that would be unbelievable. And, and not only that, they didn't die like one one year and one five years later and one. They all died on the exact same day. You lost all of them at the exact same time. And on the same day, by the way, that you lost everything else that you have. That's what Satan did to, to Job. I, I can't imagine his grief. I literally cannot imagine this man's grief. And, and what happened to him? I mean, let, let's face it. You know, something happens we can all argue about. Was it God? Is it will of God? Was it say? Listen, there was no doubt in their mind this was supernatural, Right? You don't just have one guy come up, the camels are gone, the sheep are gone, the oxen are gone, the, the, the house are gone, oh, your children are gone. That doesn't happen. Everybody understood this is a supernatural occurrence. Some kind of supernatural power is working against you, Job. He understood that. Now, the question is, how is he going to react? What is, what is Job, this man that's always had a hedge around him, this man that was blessed and prosperous. Remember, he's a blameless man. God has nothing against him. He's a, a, a good father. He loves his children. He's a prosperous man. He's a pious man. He's, he's, he, he's unique. And all of a sudden, in one fell swoop, everything that he's known is gone. All he's left with is his wife and, and, a, few, and a few friends. The question is... How is he going to react? Verses 20 to 22. Then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this... Now let's just stop there for a minute. Job immediately says... The Lord gave it to me, and the Lord took it away. Doesn't say what well, that 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 stinking devil. That devil's not even mentioned. Job immediately says, "The Lord gave it to me, 
and the Lord allowed it to be taken away. Now look at verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin, and he did not charge God wrongly. Does everybody see that? He said, the Lord took this away from me. The Lord did this. And the Bible says he did not speak wrongly. He didn't charge God anything wrong. He didn't sin. He spoke the truth. He understood who was in charge. He understood. Listen, we'll talk next week. We we can't finish here today because there's all kind of questions I got. I mean, all kind of questions. I I could spend a week just on those verses right there, and we'll spend a lot of time on them. But the point is, there's all kind of questions. Well, where did, did Satan can control the weather? Because he did, didn't he? He brought lightning. He brought a tornado. He, the other problem I got, he killed a lot of people, including the children. I got, I got big questions about that. I, I, I got to figure out, how, how does Job react like this? What kind of man is able to stand up in that kind of tragedy and worship? Who is this guy? I mean, I got all kind of questions. So we're going to come back next week and, and we're going to go through these again and look at some of these specific areas and, and talk about them. As I said, I'm not ready to, to be done with, with chapter 1. So we'll try to answer some of these questions uh, next week. So next week we'll come back to Job 1, 8 through 22, and we will continue our lesson with the first test. Let's pray. Father.